A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I have an incredibly large extended family entirely on my wife's side. Her parents were extremely active procreators. For years at family gatherings, I felt like a visitor. Eventually though, I got a new brother-in-law named Duncan, who I suppose probably felt like a visitor at first too. I recognized his like-mindedness immediately and we became fast friends. Holiday gatherings were transformed from pure consumptive gluttony into a chance to discuss Hakeem Bey, Richard Rorty, or Derrida. Duncan received an MPH in epidemiology from UCLA and was one of the first people I really opened up to about my concerns with COVID-19. Please enjoy this talk with my brother-in-law, Duncan. It is official. Do you mind if just for the purposes of everybody else kind of backtrack and take everybody through my kind of thought process, which even led to this conversation, and then we'll just have the conversation? Totally. I have a lot of opinions on a lot of things that I have no education in, like economics and politics and uh, morality and philosophy and all of this. But I do try to gather as much data as I can. And I kept hitting this hiccup where I'm looking around going, we've we've stopped. We've shut down such a huge part of of normal life for this right. thing. And I'm being told in the news that millions of people are going to die. But then when I look at certain things that it seems like that we don't really mind if a lot of people die from, you know, just throwing it out there, heart disease kills a shit ton of people. We subsidize beef and corn, which I think probably plays a factor in that. And, Nothing ever gets shut down due to it. Cancer kills a lot of people. We put a lot of money into handling cancer, but we never would shut anything down to it. Now, I understand 
you can't really, uh, those two things are non-communicable. But when I think back to being a child, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I remember, and, and granted, I, I don't think anybody had access to the CDC in the same way that we do now in the early 80s. But I remember watching the news and going like, oh, can't go to a park because you'll get AIDS. You'll catch AIDS. I don't want to do that. And then, you know, maybe a year later, it was, unfortunately, there was a moment of like, okay, well, can't shake a gay person's hand because then you'll get AIDS. And there was that. And then it was like, oh, no, I have no risk of getting AIDS unless I have sex with somebody with AIDS or am sharing needles with somebody. So. It took many years to kind of calm down about that. But that said, nothing got shut down. We we just basically did life as normal and kind of rode through that, though it was being advertised as a highly communicable disease for a while, from my memory, at least. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then I look at the numbers for flu and i know and and this will go into our conversation where many people are saying you can't compare them that's comparing apples to oranges but to my mind like apples and oranges are both carbohydrates they're a very easily comparable thing like if we're going to compare something i wouldn't compare an apple to a chicken breast they do totally different things but if we're just thinking about like magnitudes of severity, like these are perfectly reasonable things to compare. If a diabetic is going to eat an apple or an orange, you got to take insulin. So somebody saying you can't compare apples or oranges, I'm like, well, go fuck yourself. I disagree. You can easily compare those two things. Yeah. That sounds like someone who doesn't really understand what they're talking about. They think you're a categorical error, but you're you're not making a categorical categorical error. You're doing exactly the opposite. Right. So, apples and oranges. Apples and oranges are fruit. They're fruits, man. I'm not comparing apples and oranges to cheeseburgers. Those I would right. say, like, yeah, okay. I go down the line of like the flu hits us every year. Every year people die from the flu. And I'm certainly not making light of people dying from anything. I, I, I'm not wishing death upon anybody. I'm not justifying or rationalizing this thing. I'm just looking at the way we react to certain instances of infectious disease coming along and killing people. And when I look at the flu, the CDC only has estimates. The, the readily available data on the flu is all in estimates. None of it is is like uh, confirmed cases. Oh, not at all. We have no estimates on COVID-19. All we have are confirmed cases. And if you look hard and long enough, you can find confirmed data on the flu. And when you look at confirmed cases of the flu with no estimates, it actually appears to me, not being an epidemiologist like yourself, that the flu kills a lot more people than what we have. And and by the way, we're, we're now nearing 800,000 confirmed cases as of today. I'm sure within the next week we'll have a million confirmed cases. And then that's roughly on par with our confirmation of the flu. Um, and so if you just weigh them next to each other, I'm going like, I, I, you know, again, I don't think that 
any of this is good or that people should be dying. I don't want people to die, but I'm just looking at our reaction and going like this feels disingenuous that somebody's saying millions and millions of Americans are going to die from this thing when the only thing I can compare it to doesn't have that happening. And I'm getting completely lost and frustrated because I'm talking to like smart people and doctors who are just basically telling me just fall in line. We know what we know and we're not going to explain it to you in a way that you're going to understand or just take our numbers. And and I'm going like, no, come on. Somebody has to be able to present this in such a way that it really makes sense to me because right now I'm going like a whole bunch of stuff kills a whole bunch of people in America and we don't react at all. Basically. I mean, I've gotten a flu shot a handful of times, but nobody's ever made it that big of a deal. One, one year, maybe somebody came to my work and gave out flu shots and they kind of made a bit of a bigger deal out of it that one year that I'm aware of. But other than that, it's just kind of been something that like, I get and I hear in the news like, oh, it was a particularly bad season for the flu. And um, and then, like, you know, tragically, I hear like 70,000 people died this year from the flu in America. And I'm like, fuck, that's a lot of people. But there was no reaction from the country. And so that was kind of the, the frustration that led me to my conversation with you. Um, and I just want to, so like, let's have that again, because this is the first I've actually felt like, Oh, I understand this reaction a bit more. Yeah, totally. So first of all, everything that you're saying about the flu is, is not only correct, but it's what doctors are saying to each other. And I don't mean that in a, in a vast conspiracy sort of way. I just mean that if you sort of look at the kind of journalism that we're all watching, we're all reading as a nation, but then you sort of dive into some of the peer-reviewed journal that the people who are informing the journalists are reading, they're seeing exactly what you're saying. So I've been reading, because uh, I'm a nerd about this, I've been reading the New England Journal of Medicine, sort of updates on COVID. And two days ago, they were talking about confirmation rates and how some of the information that's coming out of China, which, you know, eh, with information coming out of China, you never know how scrubbed it is. But but even the scrubbed information is, is demonstrating that there are all of these either asymptomatic cases, which they're now testing for in China, or cases where they were very mild and the denominator spreading. And the New England Journal of Medicine said three days ago, you know, that it, it suggests that the fatality rate of COVID-19 is probably similar to seasonal flu, which is exactly what you're saying, right? <laughs> that it's it, it, it's nowhere near the fatality rate that we saw with SARS or MERS. Um, I, and I think the reason that there is such a panic about it is the novelty, right? Because if you talk to anyone, eh, not even my age, but say my mom's age or your grandparents still around? No, but okay. like, but you know, old people, right? Yes, <laughs> right. If you talk to them about polio, right, they'll say, "Oh, yeah, it was scary, and there were certain summers where we couldn't we couldn't go out and play in the park. Our parents kept us in, and you know, even then, your parents keeping you in. I mean, I, who knows whether that's a really a an accurate response to fear? But it becomes very domesticated, right? Because you just say, "Well, 
polio sucks and I know this kid that limps or an aunt that died, but you just sort of have to live with it. And then you kind of go around your, you build your daily routine around that and it doesn't stop becoming sad, but it becomes something we all have to deal with. And so I think that's why you see that with the flu, because there's, even though the flu kills millions of people every year and heart disease, as you pointed out, or cancers or any number of different conditions, one on top of each other, it's so standard and it's so mundane. And we have uh, we have fundraisers to stop certain diseases. And of course, when they affect our families, they become extreme and, 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 you know, um, uh, when someone in the family dies of Parkinson's, right, you can become laser focused on Parkinson's and what that does or on breast cancer. And, and, but when something's new and when it's infectious, I think of the analogy I always think of is it's something like terrorism, right? So if you look at the effects of something like 9-11, as horrible as they were, you're taking out 3,000 people at once. Now, we didn't suffer a lot of terrorism at home after that, but the fear and the response that it created is I think what you're sort of suggesting might be happening with COVID-19. There's this massive overreaction because it's unknown. You think, well, what, what are they going to bomb next? What are they going to take out? What do we have to protect against? And you go into this kind of overly defensive um, stance. And I think that maybe what's happening with COVID-19 because it's spreading so quickly. And so there's this sense of panic and everyone kind of says run for the hills and lock your doors and, and practice all the social distancing. Now, at the same time, there's there's some, we're starting to see some effect to that. So if you, there's a great, uh, a great site that I've been watching um, for the last couple of weeks at the University of Washington has been doing their epidemiology department is sending out project, projections. And now it looks like it may be what the government, what the White House particularly is looking at. And, and the New York Times today was was saying it's probably why Trump backed away from his open at Easter policy. and and. The projections, when you look at them, are not anywhere nearly as dire as the ones that that we were talking about even a week ago. And the other thing that gets obscured in all of this, and for reasons I, I guess I kind of understand, is if you look state by state, the projections are radically different. So, so California looks pretty good. The, the curve looks pretty flattened. Washington looks pretty good. New York is fucked. And we we already know that, but um, it, it's just the numbers uh, are so radically different, not so much in fatalities, because although New York has a lot more than we do, the fatality rate is the one that is electrifying people because death is something we all understand and it's scary. But that's not really where the concern is. The right. concern is, yeah. And this is kind of what totally set me at ease about the reaction, I think, is what you're going to talk about next, I believe. But, like, yes, for me, all I'm looking at is death. How right. many people get it? How many people die? Like, that's the metric I care about, right? And, right. and like, okay, 
If I get sick with something and I don't die, fine, I don't care. But, you know, we could look at measles and the metrics are the same. Like, I I have my kids vaccinated. I don't want laws about it. And when you go back to the 60s, like, even the year before we got the measles vaccination, there were hundreds of thousands of cases of measles, but only like 400 deaths in America. There were still millions right. worldwide. And I go like, well, fuck, did America really need a vaccination at that point? Um, I don't know. I'm still going to give it to my kids. But those are the metrics I look at. And so, so sorry, I didn't want to go in in a circle. But yes, I don't, I'm not looking at this going, how many people have all these symptoms. I don't care. The metric that made sense to me was death. The flu kills X amount. This right. kills X amount. How is this worse? Right. And, and so from a, not only from an epidemiological standpoint, but also from a health provider standpoint, the thing that's freaking everyone out. And I think what the real concern is, is admission rates to the hospital. And, and there's been some reporting about that. And what gets obscured in all of this, the whole flatten the curve that you're hearing about, that flatten the curve has has very little to do with fatality. It has nothing to do with fatality, really. Fatality is incidental. It has to do with utilization of hospital beds and ICUs because the sickest people that, that will say the, the ones with comorbidities, which means they've got bad diabetes or you know, maybe they've got HIV or they've, they're older so they can have any slew of of managed diseases from from coronary uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease COPD right heart conditions so all of these older people who have manageable illnesses they get hit with COVID nineteen and bam they they have an inflammatory response and they go into the hospital and they end up on a in an ICU on a ventilator so that group of people is precisely the group of people that certain places have a lot of so. Although there's, they're going to be digging through the data for a long time, what's going on in Italy is you have a regional outbreak in a region that a lot of retirees live in, in a culture where young people intermix with older people in a way that Americans don't really get because you know we kind of see our parents once or twice a year for Thanksgiving, but we don't walk to see our grandparents and there's a lot of hugging and kissing. So you've got a bunch of old people who... Uh, are smokers, you know, maybe they got heart conditions, and then they all get sick at once and they all go into the hospital and they all need an ICU because with the elderly and with the very sick, almost all of the conditions that require hospitalization with this, um, as well as to some smaller degree, the seasonal flu has to do with respiratory failure. And so they go in, they're in the ICU, they put them on a ventilator and they sit in the ICU for a, a, a strikingly long amount of time. So, and this um, was kind of the the point. You had some average of the normal amount of days that any random person spends, like the average for normal admittance to the ICU versus the average for COVID nineteen, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so although it varies across the country, the average length of stay in an ICU for for the lowest hospital. So they break hospitals up into quartiles and how they figure that all out doesn't really matter. But it's it, at the hospitals that get you out the quickest, 
it's 0.2 days, right? So you're not even in the ICU a day on average. A couple hours. And then the highest, yeah, a couple hours, right? So you kind of go in, maybe they stabilize you. The ICU is for stabilization. Once you're stabilized in an ICU, they get you out of there because they're expensive. They're incredibly intensive in terms of labor and, and highly specialized labor. So they move you into maybe a, a critical care bed, which is a, a little lower urgency, and then back onto the hospital floor. With COVID-19, the average length of stay from the cohorts that we've been looking at are, are 14 days. Oh, my God. So, yeah, and, and it can be considerably longer. And the thing that's sort of ironic and sad is the longer the stay, the more likely you die at the end. So there, there's the, the, these ICU beds are being taken up for literally weeks, and they can't move these patients. And, and when you get this kind of backup, so it's like a traffic jam. So any system, whether it's a, a capitalist system like ours, or frankly, even more, a national health system like they have in the UK or other parts of Europe, your ICU beds are so expensive. They're so expensive to run. They're expensive to staff. And so you try to figure out how many you're going to need. You look at a lot of data, and then you kind of, very much like construction, you, you kind of try to figure out how many people are going to move into the city, and then you build to accommodate them. But you don't want a bunch of houses that are just sitting over here with no one in them because they were so expensive to build. Same thing with ICU beds. So there's always a, a very little margin, right? And sometimes you have more, sometimes you have less, depending on something like a flu season. But but everyone, I would guarantee that even people our age and younger, everyone's been in an ICU. If you're if you live to 40, you've been in an ICU probably at least once. I've been in four times because I I'm a crap driver and I get hit a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, your parents been in one, you go and you sort of visit in the ICU. All those people get trapped out of the ICU, young or old, if all the ICUs are there's no vacancy for two weeks. So if you think of an average length of stay of even four days, which is the average length of stay on the outside, I mean, four days, that's that's three different long-term stays fit into one average COVID-19 stay. So all of these people with strokes, who suicide attempts, car accidents, falling off ladders, I mean, everything that you can imagine that sticks you in an ICU to get you stabilized, no more ICUs. So when you look at the breakdowns for what's going on in New York, the reason that there's this terror and the reason the fatality rate is so high and that you see body bags being taken out in Brooklyn is because of people who are either getting displaced from the ICU, which is starting to happen, uh, or people who just can't get in because there's already a full ICU. So the ICU shortage in New York is astronomical. It's in the tens of thousands, which is crazy. You look at someplace like California, we're not projected to have an ICU bed deficit at all. The only deficit we're projected to have are ventilators, which is important because half of the people that end up in the ICU are going to end up on ventilators. And ventilators is part of the reasons why the stays so long. What you were saying originally, that there's something fishy about the way the numbers are being presented, it's even fishier than you think it is. And 
again, not fishier in a conspiratorial way so much, just the, the way that that things become complicated numerically. And you, when you look at them and you start really taking a look, you're like, wait a minute, this is going to have the same fatality rate as seasonal flu. But because it's new, because it attacks a group of people who are, are kind of the folks running things, right? right. Like, I mean, that's another great point that, that we, you know, the flu kind of kills a certain percentage equally, right? Right. And this kind of targets, it seems to be targeting older men. Yes, like it does. By a big margin, which... You know, like, I don't mean to play into that stereotype, but, like, I, that might have something to do with all the men having this reaction. Yeah, absolutely. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. So, it's interesting. A couple of years ago, the National Endowment of Humanities sent me and a, a cohort of these awesome teachers to Virginia Tech for two weeks, and then we went to DC for a week. We went to the National Library of Medicine, the National Institutes of Health, and we were studying the 1918 pandemic because they were getting ready for the centenary. And the 1918 pandemic, which everyone hears about now because it's the last American pandemic that we had, no one ever talked about it. No one, it was, it was like this weird secret that after four years of being in the war, uh, the world just sort of shut down and then everyone started dying from this pandemic. But what was crazy about the pandemic in 1918, because of the way that that influenza was structured genetically, it, it hit exactly the sort of people that are normally free from flu. So, it, and it, the reasons why are fascinating, but they're a whole other conversation. But they hit people who were 18 to 35. That was where the fatality rate was. If you were really old or really young, you were fine. So it just mowed through this group. And initially, because you have older adults who are kind of looking at this sort of thing, there's this attempt to play it off very early in, in the, the published reports in the media, your newspaper reports. Um, you do start to have, because it's during the progressive era, the sort of centralized agency that's reporting out, but you start seeing the same thing you saw with HIV. Oh, well, this is a gay disease, or this is a junkies disease, or, well, you know, well, there it's a bunch of Haitians, and we know about the Haitians, wink, wink. And you saw the same sort of thing in the pandemic, because very much like war, right, which is the other analogy, you, you got older men who are sending younger men and women to fight their war. And you saw that with the pandemic. This pandemic it's exactly the guys who are running for president, right? I mean, the, the diamond lane for COVID-19 is going to take out Trump, Bernie, and Biden. Oh, my God. Statistically, right? So, so you, you've really got a group of people who are making decisions who realize, oh, shit, this, I'm, I'm the prime candidate, and I didn't get a flu shot because you can't get a flu shot for this. And I think that's... Another piece is, and after to go back to the point you were making about why isn't the flu kind of on the top of everyone's list if it's a bigger killer and it comes every year, I think that there's a sense of false security that gets underplayed. And I, I get it. I go get my flu shot. 
and I feel sort of invincible. I'm like, well, I got my flu shot and it's 43% effective. And if you run the numbers, and then I just sort of go out into the world and I do my thing and, and I teach kids. And I, I mean, I go see my dad in the nursing home and it, I don't ever think about that. But I'm a, if I were infected, I'd, I'd be a classic carrier because I have this false sense of confidence. And I think it's that lack of a false sense of confidence that you hear over and over again. If you just sort of scan the news, uh, no vaccine, it's gonna take a year for a vaccine, no way to have immunity. And it starts to respond to the fears that most journalists are hearing. And um, uh, almost all of the sensational, not sensational lists, but definitely sensational high profile headlines are all about nursing homes getting wiped out. Uh, there's one that um, most of the folks I know above a certain age have been circulating about a choir in Washington and they had, Washington had gone to Safer at Home and this choir was older folks at this Presbyterian church and they decided, okay, we're gonna do our choir rehearsal, but we're gonna stay apart and we're gonna have our own sheet music. And now eight of them have it and three of them have died and it was like a 40 person choir. So that gets circulated because that's a scary story if you're 65 or older, if that, right? And let's face it, those are the people who are making a lot of the decisions. We've got an old, I mean, we've got the oldest group of guys going for president ever. We have the old group of CEOs. We've got people who are living very productive lives, which is a great thing but they're living with diabetes and with heart disease and with all of these things we've been able to successfully treat, but that make them particularly susceptible to this thing that's wiping um, a, a particular group out. And that group is old men. Right. That is a piece of the puzzle that I had never even thought about, but I find it to be such a fascinating piece to the puzzle. You yeah. know, I got to be completely frank with you. I haven't actually looked at the news in a couple of weeks because I was just it was just too much. Like, yeah, the numbers don't make sense to me when I really try to look at actual data. And then, like, if if you even just take the prince, I think it was Princess Cruise Ship as like there's a lot of people in a confined space and this thing went around. Let's just use that as a base to make predictions off of. Even if you made <laughs> predictions off of that, the numbers aren't the same as we're being told. And so I'm going like, I, I, I just don't understand it. And But if the average stay in the ICU is X amount longer, I can totally see what that traffic jam would do and i and i then understand this reaction a little bit more it makes sense i go okay yeah so if we're accustomed in america to two million deaths per year and a certain probably high percentage of those are in the icu at some point what happens if there's no access to the icu and how much larger will that number become because uh, that that makes sense to me. Like I go, oh, okay, then fine. I I understand this reaction, and that's where I can see those numbers become hyperinflated. But it's not just one for one. You get this specific coronavirus, and it's gonna. You know what I mean? No, no, totally. I and I think think your analogy to HIV is a good one too. So 
One of the arguments that was made, and it was a fair argument during the height of the of the AIDS crisis, when there was no treatment and there was, it was just sort of decimating at-risk populations, you had health economists and 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 other well-meaning people saying, "Hey, guys, at the height of this crisis, we're not losing as many people to HIV as we are to heart disease. So why are we throwing all this money and all of this?" All of this cash and, and treasure and 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 pain and and sympathy in this one direction, and we're leaving out these killers that just wipe people out every year. And it's a fair call. I think the the answer was because it's wiping out one group of people, right? So if if you had a disease and you do, right, you have diseases that because of for genetic reasons affect certain populations. So you know, Ty Sachs affects one population or the uh, the BRCA1 gene in certain for breast cancer and others if if it starts wiping out an entire group of people it makes sense that that group of people would not only yell the loudest become politically active right so with HIV you've got act up and you have all of these political this, this desire to make it political and to make it dramatic and to kind of do um Acts of civil disobedience that raised the temperature, and they were successful. Now, the 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 likelihood of anyone who is not gay or a drug user or sleeping with someone who had HIV, it never went up or down because it was never high to begin with, right? Just as you were pointing out. But I, I understand how a group of people would say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! It may, you may not have to worry about it, but I have to worry about it." So. Um, with the the students I teach, they there was a they always try to be very sensitive. They're great kids, and I'm the lead teacher at a public public magnet. It's the Kennedy Medical Magnet, and it's a magnet program that's set up for very gifted um, but socioeconomically disadvantaged, so working class kids and. They, it's go Cougars. It's a great program. Which, by the way, I want to just say, Duncan, as my brother-in-law, you are one of my absolute favorite people to talk to. And we have had so many, like, wonderful and radical conversations. I had always envisioned you and I coming on here and talking about the state of nutrition in that group of people. Like I really had thought like, that's what we're going to talk about. It's going to be an awesome episode. And now here we are in the midst of an apocalypse and (laughs) we're having this conversation. So I do hope one day to have that conversation and share it with people. Oh, obviously. Yeah, that would be fantastic. No. And, uh, back at you. Every time, uh, every time miles looks over and I'm fiendishly pounding out on my phone. He says, Ethan, I said, yeah, we got to solve this problem, man. We're going to solve it. We're going to solve it. Yeah. So, um, so my kids, you know, they, they laugh because I'm a baby boomer. I, I just hit the last year of the baby boom. And, and, um, so we've gone through the whole, okay, boomer meme and everything. And, and they kind of came up to me and they said, oh, we've been calling COVID-19 the boomer remover. And and it made me laugh because that's my sense of humor. But it's interesting that for them, at least at a, at a comic level, but maybe at a little bit of a, this whole thing feels like um, that, they're, that they're afraid, but they're afraid, technically speaking, for the wrong reasons. They're the 
They're the average heterosexual during the HIV crisis. They're not going to die. I mean, the, the fatality rates for, for high school age students and younger without any other condition, the, the one or two, the exceptions that prove the rule, they get reported all over the place because these kids aren't going to die. And to the degree that they're kept at home, there's a concern that they're going to carry the asymptomatic virus or they're going to be asymptomatic and they're going to hand the virus over to someone who is old. And so, and, and also if you watch, um, and I know you haven't been, and I actually haven't been either, but even when I get, uh, I get a, a whiff of some of the 24 hour televised news cycle, you'll constantly hear this idea of, oh, well, people are going out on the beach because they have no concern for elders. This is a form of elder abuse. And I thought, elder abuse? But to be fair, if, if I was an old white guy, I'd be like, what the hell is going on? I'm going to die. I could die. So I really think that dynamic later when people look back, they're going to sort of see why that drove a lot of the um, excitement around this, that it's primarily an old person's disease, much like flu, but even more so even than flu. And, um, and especially, especially men for reasons that are not at all clear. Yeah. Like 70% are men, right? That was the yeah. last number I saw. I, that, and obviously that could change, but the last number I saw it was 70% of the fatalities were amongst men. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and even some of the early theories, while they may well, they may still definitely play a factor. They almost certainly have to, like smoking, right? So in China, uh, some huge number of men smoke, and I, I don't have the figure, but it's over half. And then, uh, but by contrast, in, in China, relatively few women smoke. It's sort of a gendered behavior, and very much like it was in America 100 years ago. It's something women don't do, but men do. But then when you look at Italy, well, everyone smokes. Like it, it, it doesn't have the same sort of gender breakdown. And, and yet we're still seeing more men dying and dying at, uh, uh, dying at much, yeah, much higher rates. So uh, I, what will be really interesting, what's interesting if you look at Italy is then if you take a look at Germany's numbers, the, there's this what the fuck moment because Germany is sort of where Italy was relatively recently. But their their fatality rate is unbelievably low. Their fatality rate really is a little higher now than seasonal flu, but just a little bit. It's in the hundreds, even though tens of thousands of people have it. And so now a lot of epidemiologists, even as this whole thing is going on, are trying to say, well, wait, what? so what's happening here? Because their healthcare systems are, you know, Germany's probably got maybe a little better one. I mean, better finance, who knows? But they're not. They're not so different that we should be seeing that kind of disparity. But the, it looks like the, the early reporting has the Germans sort of in a very Germanly engineered way saying, right, old people, protect the old people. Don't worry so much about the young people. Make sure that old people are quarantined off. We'll get to the young people later. And that, that kind of stratification, which is kind of what this whole conversation in some ways, when you were talking to me, started out with, right, was this idea of, wait a minute, it's being treated like there's this fatality rate and we're all susceptible to it, even though, yeah, okay, it's higher for older people. 
it sounds like Germany understood that from the outset and then planned around it. And they kind of cordoned off their old folks. They didn't worry so much about young people. Now, of course, they've got them locked down, but they really limited the, the inter, um, the exchange between the young and the old. And the result has been significantly lower fatality rates. The story's not over in Germany and it's not over here or in Italy, but I wouldn't be surprised if that fatality rate stays extremely low and, and kind of sets itself apart as the low end to whatever the high end will be, almost certainly Italy, uh, but maybe here, I don't know. I, but even in, um, even in places like Florida, right? So everyone thought Florida, it's going to be huge. It's going to devastate Florida. They've got such a great population. And it may still happen, but, but Florida looks like they're doing pretty well, even though they have a more conservative government that was more inclined to kind of uh, uh, shrug it off um, at the beginning. They were really, really focused on the elderly. So they locked down the nursing homes and they sort of told old people stay inside. And it looks like it may be having an effect in their overall fatality rate because the old, the elderly are being protected. I talked to an infectious disease guy and he was like, we should be doing reverse quarantines where you're not having a lot of people come and go from nursing homes. When we got to the like everybody's quarantined or a version of quarantined, you know, I don't know right. if we're properly quarantined, but we're pretty close, I think. Right. When we got to that, it really did send the message to me, everyone is equally at risk. Right. And, you know, there was a moment where I was like, is it safe to breathe air outside? Like, I just don't know. You're giving me these astronomically high projections for fatalities, along with telling me I have to stay in my house. I don't, I'm not a guy who likes to spend my days afraid. So I'm going to start to look for the, the, the information that rationalizes us doing this. And right. obviously I will stay in my house. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the guy like walking around hugging people as an act of aggression. That's, I'm not that guy either, but I just want to understand it. And and I, 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 I do feel like I'm at a place where I understand it a little better. I, I don't know that I necessarily thoroughly agree with the way we're carrying this out. Like, I think if it is, uh, uh if it is this certain population that is much more susceptible, I, I think it might be a little bit more rational to quarantine that population and then have a, a hyper... Uh, vigilance stance on hygiene for everyone else, if that makes oh. sense? No, it does. I mean, if we had this all to do over again, and we we sort of will, I mean, what I told my students, right. Uh, right, <laughs> what, uh, what I told them before school broke, um, I said, listen, you know, after being in epidemiology, after having studied the 1918 pandemic, because they were, of course, terrified, right? Their the school's over and whatever joy there was at the idea that they were going to get some time off school was mitigated by the fact that with my school population, most of my students have older family members they live with. And so they were concerned about them. And I said, um, at the end of this, there's going to be some death and it's going to be awful. But what it's not the kind of disease that like Ebola 
um, hits pretty much a wide spectrum of people indiscriminately. This is an old person's disease, much like flu, which it can easily be compared to. They're both respiratory viruses. They function in similar ways. The COVID-19 has some elements that make it scarier than the flu for individual patients because um, for reasons that uh, I'm sure the, the doctor you were talking to probably got into, but but overall, the comparison's a very apt one. Apples and oranges are no. It's a fruit comparison, and it works. Um, but the kids were scared. And I said, listen, this is like our dress rehearsal for the real deal, right? Because if we had one 100 years ago and we're having one now, we'll eventually have another one. And it may be a MERS type of situation that had a 30% and still does have a 33% fatality rate. I mean, that's, that's super scary. But hopefully with this one, we're going to be able to do some Monday uh, morning quarterbacking um, and after it's all over and kind of figure out what worked, what didn't, what do we need to staff and, and sort of make some good decisions. Then again, you know, we may not, right? Murphy's Law. But hopefully it will be fresh on everyone's mind and people start looking at the data and they'll realize, hey, you know what? If we had... If we had taken half the time and half the money that we spent and or lost, right, like $2 trillion and God only knows how much in lost revenue for the economy throwing, going through a new hole, if we'd taken that money and created some sort of solution that involved quarantining the elderly, moving them out of people's homes and maybe into some sort of retirement situation until everything flew over, we would probably have an economy that was still functioning. We would have lower fatality rates and you would probably have what you have with the seasonal flu, which is the at-risk groups are, are very highly attuned to it, right? So when, when I worked in healthcare, um, I was really aware of flu, not only because I had to track it and, and figure out what it meant, but also because I worked in clinical areas. And so we were hypersensitive to it. So we all got flu shots and we all had our TB tests and we all were made hyper aware. The rest of the world wasn't because they were doing exactly what you said the world does, which is like, it's the flu, right? Yeah. I hope I don't get it. But, and, the, but it goes beyond the flu too, Duncan, because a huge part of my time since this has begun, since we became officially quarantined, has been spent looking at death rates um, associated yeah. with things. And, and, and again, I understand that that's not even the scariest metric here because it's it's more when I when I go down the line of the things that you've said that actually make me under, feel that I understand it more. I recognize that it's more of a systemic collapse of infrastructure with healthcare that then has a domino effect that spreads out. And and, and I get that, but when I think about things like you know, hunger, which is completely solvable. Right. 25,000 people pass away every day, day in, day out, like 9 million people a year starve to death. We just don't care about that because right. we can't catch it here. Tuberculosis kills something like a million plus people a year. Malaria kills a shitload of people. There are solutions to these things that 
we just don't care about. Now, I understand hunger isn't in America. Very objectively walk around and there's not a lot of starving people in America. Also, malaria doesn't seem to be a thing here. And tuberculosis seems to be largely not a thing here. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So then it, I just go like, Wow, shit. You know, I mean, at what point do we say this thing must be stopped? The flu isn't being stopped. I know there are attempts to slow it down, but even with the flu shots, aren't they like a 50-50? Like, it's just somebody guessing which strain of the flu that we're going to get that year. Yeah, right. Much. So, yeah. so that's throwing shit against the wall and hoping something sticks. And, and so... I just go like, I understand that today, I understand that every single day we have more data and more data and more data to kind of form an idea of what's really going on with this thing. Um, And so it might be slightly disingenuous for me to ask you today what you would have done three weeks ago, but what is that what you, if you had your druthers, would you build a complex and ship all the old people to live in the complex? while this kind of spread its way through the younger population? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, this, this is going to sound like a bad joke, but if before all of the stuff on the cruises, I would have said, give everyone a two-week cruise of the Mexican Riviera or the Caribbean or the French Riviera, wherever, and going to get all of, all of the oldsters somewhere where they can be protected from young people who are going to get sick. I mean, but then, you know, how do you, it's sort of the situation that we're 
we're about to see, I think, in the prisons. Now, having said that, the last thing in the world you want is someone in a concentrated area that is inescapable, um, whether it be a prison and it's literally inescapable or it's a cruise and it's probably... The last thing in the world you want is in a disease running rampant in the very population you're seeking to to save. So three weeks ago... um, that's that's a that's a good question, and I'm still trying to think that through. I feel like um, I feel like what I would have done is something similar to what Californians done. As as weird as that sounds, I just would have prepared people to to deal with it more um, economically. I would have, you know, a few years ago, several God, a few years ago, or a decade ago there was all of this talk about telecommuting and people were going to commute from home. And um, when I was working for a large nonprofit healthcare company uh, that had 100,000 employees, they talked a lot about it. And then it never really happened. And it didn't happen for all sorts of weird reasons. For uh, Because if you worked in your home, it became your workplace. So there were liability issues. So people were suing their employer if they tripped in their house. Just, just the kind of stupid <laughs> oh stuff God. that they really were. Yeah, I mean, it. It, it, it just the kind of the liability and the legal community couldn't figure it out. I, I feel like if we just hung in there, we would have. But if we found some way to to work um, in a kind of satellite way, then we probably could have done something like this and not seen the kind of economic that that we're seeing. And the thing about this, um, just just for a little balance, although although it's crazy and it's hard to think outside of what we're we're living in in this sense of isolation it also um i mean i'm sure it's one of those things that besides all the babies that are going to get made and all the divorces that are beginning to happen because (laughs) couples who never really had to spend this kind of time together with a sense of um a sense of panic over them or are finding that their marriages are going to get stronger or going to get weaker it is interesting. Like I've read more books and I've had more thoughtful conversations. And uh, and even though I'm a teacher, so we're teaching, we're doing distance learning, or at least we're trying to. And so it's not like my days on my own, but um, just uh, we have some people who are visiting from us who got stuck here. I have a friend from England who came out in the beginning of March and was supposed to, or rather the beginning of February. And he was supposed to be out in March, and he's with us for the duration. But um, just the ability to have uh, a lot of time together in a way that um, is forced. Like you can't, you know, you're having arguments in the house, and you, you can't get in the car and drive to work and say, I'll deal with it or I won't deal with it. You kind of have to deal with it in place. So, um, so I'm not answering your question because I don't have a good answer. No, answer but I is- like that answer because I'm, I'm having much the same experience. The only part of my life that's actually s- suffering is that my children feel that they're on house arrest and that I'm imposing this upon them, which I've broken it down to them a number of times. You know, my younger kids, obviously the kids from home from college kind of get it a bit more, but like Grace who just turned 13, called Lily, who is 21, a boomer the other day, which I thought was so wonderful. Um, 
so I'm, you know, I'm getting to experience stuff like that when, when Gen, when Gen Z is calling the millennials boomers, I'm like, I'm fucking in. I want to watch this show all day long, you know? Um, it's so good. There is for sure a moment every day where I sit back and go there. God damn, there is a reason that we send them all away to school because <laughs> we need a we need a portion of time throughout the day where it's like not just children. Um, so that there's that. And then going to the gym, I miss going to the gym. Obviously, yeah. I'm not actually suffering at all. You know, I've got my family who most of my family goes to school in other states. My kids are in college on the East Coast and in school in the, in the Pacific Northwest. So to have them all here is actually like a gift. Um, but, I, but I will say in the beginning, it was a scary gift because sure. I'm like going like every day, like what's happening? Is our, our half is half of my family going to die from this thing? Or, you know, even if it's just 1% of my family, that me or two or three or four, whatever that is, that could be me or one of my children. How scary is this for us? And by today, I'm like, this is not scary for us at all. Right. Um, right. I, I don't think it is scary for my parents. So we're insanely diligent in dealing with them. Um, but for me, I don't know. So I don't know. I, I think, but I, but I respect what you're saying that there are certain uh, takeaways from this that we should be looking on with kind of, uh, you know, as, as though they're gifts like this time, if we're using it productively um, is good is well spent. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, but to, to go back to what you were saying about the gym, I mean, we're so, we're liberated in many ways. And I think you'll agree by our routines, right? Like you get a lot out of, of your time at the gym. Like that's, it's easy to dismiss something like that, but it, it's really important. Um, I, I'm energized by being with classrooms full of, of, of 16 and 18 year olds. I mean, I just, uh, the energy and the way that they, they're not constrained in their thinking and being around that kind of imaginative power, um, because right, I'm not a father, right? so I so I get to actually go be with other people's kids, and then when they get irritating, I get to send them home. Right, yeah. it's like being a people, right? So you don't have to go. Oh, I've got to break up their fights. Um, but but I I was feeling a sense of um, maybe grief is too too big a word. I don't want to overuse a word that that has such a heavy connotation, maybe grief with a small G, but I, it wasn't depression. And I, and I realized I, I missed them. Um, I miss, I miss seeing their faces. It feels like, um, like a, a friendship that's gone or uh, not like a death, but like, like someone you really love who lives somewhere else comes out and spends some quality time. And then you put them on the plane. And even though, you know, you're going to see them again, there's the feeling of like, well, this sucks because they're going away for another year or however long before I see my my friend I used to hang out with. And so so there's something to be said, too, about the way our routines and our ability to to have freedom, right, to go to the gym or not go uh, really gives us a sense of purpose. And when that's taken away from us and 
we're told, luckily in this country, we're kind of told with a wagging finger and not with a gun, right? We're told, go and stay home and deal with your shit at home. And um, it, yeah, it's great because you get to be with the people if you make the best of it. But uh, I think we're all going to be really excited to get back to our ordinary lives yeah, at the same time. I do too. And like the gym is such a, uh, uh, like a, basically the way I start every day that not having it is, you know, I even said it on this podcast a number of times, like I take Sundays off generally and it's my least favorite day of the week. So I just have an endless cycle of Sundays. Um, I am exercising, which definitely makes me feel better, but it's not nearly the same. Uh, but to, to, to a point you made earlier, I'm a big fan of Nassim Taleb who wrote the black swan and anti-fragile. And he talks a lot about how a virus is going to be the thing that comes and kicks our ass and a big pandemic. And, and, and how you said, this is the dress rehearsal. We're going to get to do this again. I laughed because, and, and you said like, you know, this, this could happen down the road where it's something major and we're like, fig it is a dress rehearsal for that, but not even that dude. I was thinking when you said that we're going to just do this again in the fall. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know what we I mean? Met. Yeah, totally. We're, totally. We're, the summer comes and everybody posits that this will go away in the warmer, uh, with the warmer climate and it's going to die down and hopefully business as usual. And then the fall comes and we do it all again. I think. I, I think you're right. I think so. Maybe the way to think about this until a vaccine comes up, is because when you were talking about um, sort of how we deal with other diseases or the flu, and uh, I was thinking of um, when I was at UCLA doing epidemiology, actually, when studying it, I had this professor. He was a rock star. He was a classic, a classic type where he was an immunologist with like a 70s porn star mustache and he wrote a, a Harley, like an old school chopper. He was one of those dudes. I love this guy. Uh, he, like, he's amazing, Mark Schenkenberg. And he, uh, he was one of the, the who team that wiped smallpox off the face of the earth. And, and I'd always heard about that. And you, when I thought about it in my head, I thought, okay, so this is all these frontline clinics and all these devoted people and it's these, you know, sort of like a, a medicine sans frontier, right? Like a, like a Doctors Without Borders kind of, uh, I think of it in these real cinematic terms. And so then I'm sitting across from this guy who was one of the really small group. And I said, so what was it like? And he said, well, it was me and six other doctors. Uh, I did Africa. I did a little of India, but I was in charge of Africa, the Sub-Saharan. And it was us in a, in a land cruiser. And we just rode around. And I said, what? And he said, well, we had inoculant and we would just go from town to town and we would inoculate people. And we had little signs of what smallpox looked like. And I said, so it was you and a bunch of dudes like listening to, you know, uh, America or bread um, with long hair and beards driving around in a Land Cruiser. And he goes, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so it, <laughs> so uh, that's I, a great image by the way I, he man he had like all these slides and it was just uh uh it, it was he we had this whole slideshow presentation 
I would love to get my hands on it. It was just, it, it was, it was fantastic on a number of levels. First, that, um, I mean, talk about it takes a small group of people to change the world. Like, um, it was just this group of people, and he goes, you know, once you inoculate people, it's over. So we just sort of went through, and after a while, it takes a couple of years, and. And you're on this sort of vision quest, but you work your way through Cameroon and you work your way through Gambia. And, and then you don't have to worry about those areas anymore. And he says, so once you have a way to cure it, it doesn't take very long. But, but what made me thoughtful about it is that's the only thing we've done that to. And um, you know, polio is still around in small pockets. So even something as dramatic as polio, that there's still a lot of social memory around we don't attack the way we attack smallpox. And I think, um, I think it's because smallpox was so virulent, it was so dramatic, right? I mean, you, it not only changed, um, back when I was a smoker, one of the, the lines that people would say to me, non-smokers, that would piss me off because it would actually make me think about not smoking, was they would say, imagine if what's going on inside was outside. Like if every time, every year you had cigarettes, you got grayer and sadder and wrinkled, you'd stop. And I thought, shit, that's true. Am I really that superficial? And it's just, nah, man, if you can see it, if you can see people going through it and you have a visceral response to it, then you change your behavior. So to, to, I think we may be going through this again. Um, the takeaway we may have from it is that this kind of early warning system, like the kind we had, like the kind they um, had in South Korea, although, you know, who knows what those numbers are like. I mean, I hate to, I hate to be, a, be ethnocentric and say, well, you can't really trust Korea and China's numbers, but you can't really trust their numbers. Um, if only because it's been so, Korea's still going through it and, and China, we're still looking at those numbers. But yeah, and and with China, is it possible that they're just done? Like no new cases? They've won. No. So the 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 kind of the conventional wisdom in the West is that they, for their own economic reasons, they're underplaying the virus that still exists. Now they're they are reporting, they just came out and they said they found 1,300 cases in different parts of China, but those do appear to be cases of people of the Chinese coming home. So they've caught it from Europe and they're coming back and then they immediately go into quarantine. So there's, there is some reason to believe that they've, they've licked it through this kind of draconian measure that they took. Uh, but who knows? I mean, most of China, China's still got a billion people who haven't been affected, uh, a billion plus. And I mean, as far as I know, they're not doing anything outside of Wuhan to, to mitigate that or to rather to prevent it right and if the r factor is really like 2.5 is it possible that those that it ends with those 1300 people none of the people on the planes uh, none of the people in the airports none of the people in those other people's homes are going to get it yeah i mean it doesn't it doesn't make sense at all it makes sense that you would start seeing the spread because that that happened here right we started getting the first cases in the United States from people who were coming off cruises or coming off planes from areas that had high infection rates. And now it's all community-based, right? It's it's person-to-person transmission or surface-to-person. There's now a lot of evidence that, you know, initially we thought, okay, well, maybe it is 
like the flu, um, more like the flu in its contagion in that it's droplet that gets aer- uh, it becomes aerosoled and and um, you sort of breathe it in uh, and surfaces maybe, but not so much. But now there seems to be mounting evidence that the surface viability is a factor and people are getting it who haven't had direct contact with someone who's infected. So in China, I mean, I would think the Chinese would be terrified of the next wave because, uh, I mean, Wuhan isn't even, it isn't even one of their major urban centers. I mean, it it has cities that rival some of our largest just in terms of population, but they have a method of social control that that we don't, thank God, have access to. So, um, you know, they can lock whole, whole cities down in the way that they did. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think we'll know. I, I was listening to an interview with a Chinese doctor, and it's so hard to tell with these things. He he was not giving the party line, both literally and metaphorically. Uh, and he seemed like he was fielding questions in a fairly relaxed way. But it's so hard to, to tell what's, what's kind of really, really going on there. Um, but, but I think they probably licked it. And, and they probably are going to employ the same sort of social strategies. With us, I think a lot depends on what there seems to be quite a bit of evidence that we have existing therapies that um, either, in, at least in small sample sizes, uh, are really, really powerful interventions for cases that seem to be serious. Um, and and those, the, so we've got, um, I can't think of the name of the antiviral now, but it's the one Gilead had developed for Ebola. They're they're doing trials on that, and that seems to be uh, really effective. It attacks the same glycoproteins and receptor sites that this this variant of SARS attacks. So we may very well see a treatment protocol that uh, mitigates the serious cases, and if they are able to to manufacture that quickly, um, then I mean when this comes around again, which some epidemiologists are definitely predicting, then maybe we won't see, what we'll see is some sort of at-risk stratification where you target the people who are likely to get it and likely to get it bad. And then you sort of ready the forces so that when you get them into the IV, you give them the therapy and then they're, they're out within an average length of stay. Because some of the trials I was seeing, it, it works very quickly. So once you find an antiviral that works, um, there's no reason to think that it won't work rapidly. And what I hadn't understood until fairly recently about the pneumonia. So uh, just real quick, one of the things that's interesting about studying the 1918 pandemic is it, it wasn't the flu that killed everyone. Um, the, what killed everyone was viral and bacterial pneumonia infections that were, they were the sequela that came after the flu. So the particular flu in 1918 sort of wiped out the bronchial epithelium. So it wiped out all of your, your, your sort of slimy protective layer of your bronchia, the very layer that protects you from getting viral and bacterial lung disease. And before it had a chance to grow back, all that protection being lost you succumbed to pneumonia. And that's when you read the horror stories from that time, they all involve cyanosis and 
a lack of oxygen and an almost zombie-like atmosphere where people are walking around and hallucinating and because their, their oxygen levels are so low because their lungs are filling up. I, I had thought initially when, when all of this pneumonia was being seen that it was something similar. And I thought, well, I mean, God, with the vaccines for pneumonia and, and all the antibiotics that we have, even the ones that are getting weaker, surely we can knock this out. I hadn't realized that it's actually the virus itself that, that's getting in the lungs and is causing the pneumonia to occur. So it's not, a, it's not another virus or a bacterial infection, at least not in the main. It's actually the virus itself. Um, and that's part of its pathogenesis that, that makes it a little scarier than the flu. The flu doesn't tend to be the direct cause of pneumonia. It only kind of paves the way. Uh, and that was the case in 1918. But this one, the pneumonia is caused by the virus itself. So if we can find some kind of mitigation through an antiviral or I know they're looking at um, uh, quinine and, and hydroquinine and some of these other uh, things that actually weaken the immune system, but they do it in a way that that makes the the virus susceptible to it. Uh, maybe we'll find some sort of, of treatment uh, plan and then we'll be able to, to take a more measured public health response like we do, frankly, with the seasonal flu. Let me ask you this. If sure. I, I, I believe America has a million hospital beds available at any time. Obviously, the ICU beds is a much, much, much smaller number. But let's say we had in this fantasy world one bed available with a respirator for every person in America. Do you you think in that scenario, the reaction to this is business as usual? I actually think you would see a lot of that, not because it would be it would be accurate, right? Because. I mean, a, a large portion of the people who are hospitalized and go into the ICU end up dying. So it's a it's a significant number. Even after they've been ventilated for two weeks, they end up not making it. And so even having the ventilators available would be a false sense of security for those people who are, for lack of a better word, kind of doomed just because of, right? Um, but I I do think... I do think it would probably make the people most affected by it feel safer in the same way that, um, I mean, uh, so my parents, my, my, my mom's and her husband, they're right in the diamond lane, right? They're in the ones that are going to go the quickest if they get it. And luckily, they're, they live in, in a rural area and they don't even go out of their house. So they don't come into contact with many people. But even during flu season, when they were living down in Los Angeles, they'd go get their flu shots and then it was business as usual. They didn't change their lives at all. So it was still quite possible for them to get the flu and they both have comorbidities. So they they both would be highly susceptible to seasonal flu even. And, but uh, I mean, they just didn't, you know, so much of the the level of fear and anxiety is produced from around us and above us. And it's, it's never going to be completely accurate. I'm just saying if there was a way to mitigate the traffic, the potential for traffic jam, if that was taken off the table, so there, you know, I guess you got to factor in the amount of doctors available too. But if there was no potential for traffic jam at the hospital, so that system couldn't be overburdened and couldn't collapse. Right. We're, we're not looking at something where the numbers 
are are so insane that we should all be panicked in the in the way of pretty much anything else from what I'm looking at. Yeah, I would yeah, the only I think the only caveat I would make is that along with the beds you need the staff. Right. And so um and the staff is largely getting sick also, right? They are. I mean, what I think is is so strange and I hope is not doesn't stay as unsung as it has is healthcare workers are getting I think the um they're getting the kind of respect and there's a sense of heroism about their ability particularly in places like Italy but, but definitely in places like New York and everywhere you know these people who are dealing with very infectious people without appropriate protection there is something heroic in that but I think um maybe to a lesser degree, but I think to a very unsung degree, every time I go into a Whole Foods and I look at these young people largely who are walking around interacting with people because because having access to food is one of the things that makes this not go into high panic. I mean, if they started closing down grocery stores, people freak yeah. Yeah. That's the end of the world. I mean, that yeah. becomes like suddenly there are like warlords in Los Angeles. Totally, totally. And, and, and I think there's reason to believe it would become like that. And, and so the, I mean, every time I go in with my gloves and I don't you know, wear a mask, um, but I, I'll, I'll put on gloves to make miles happy and I'll, I'll go in. I look at these, um, I look at just these, these ordinary people who are doing their job and they're coming into work while everyone else is freaking out. And they have, they have every reason to fear that they're far more vulnerable. You know, and they come in and they do their job for 15 bucks an hour. And it, and I, I think it's really easy to overlook them, but the fact that they're continuing to do that is, um, I mean, I, I don't know that everyone would. I mean, I know teachers were like, let's get out of here. We got to get our kids safe. There was just this sense of urgency. They have to feel that increasingly as as infection rates go up and as they realize that they're probably the most vulnerable because they come into contact with so many people a day. But you don't really hear a lot about them. And I completely, utterly agree with you. I think it can't be said enough. I I uh, I will say that we in our in our household kind of began the quarantine about 10 days before it was kind of ordered and uh-huh. and we we pulled our children out of school and and got them home and we're like we're just going to hang out here for a bit until this all calms down and when i walked down the darkest potential road the darkest fantasy fantasy is not the right word the darkest nightmare in my head if you get fear, if fear becomes big enough, which I don't think the media is trying to do much other than fear and upset us. Yeah. And you get to a point where people stop going to work because they're so scared of this thing. That's when we really collapse. So everybody who's doing an essential job is really on the front line of this. And, and like, Totally. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it seems that our government only ever agrees on war, you know, kind of bipartisan, like, let's go to war thing. And it seems that we've got a bipartisan let's go to war on coronavirus happening right now. 
Um, And so really who are on the front lines are the kids at grocery stores, anybody delivering food, anybody trucking that food to you. And for sure, like even like the guys in the trenches doing battle are the doctors. Totally. Totally. I mean, it, it absolutely. Because um, in a war that's being fought with such peculiar front lines, it, it's just so easy. I remember, um, I remember when school shootings were what we worried about, and certainly what we worried about as school teachers. And I, I read this crazy statistic that, um, and I and I, I remember verifying at the time, but I've got to go back and and so. So don't hold me on it. But I remember uh, just a year ago, there was some shocking statistic that more people had been killed in a year in American school shooting than we'd lost um, in our military. And right. That like was a, since Vietnam or something like that. Yeah. It's like something insane. Like and we've been at the, war that whole time, basically, too, for whole, the last 20 years. <laughs> absolutely. Right. And so it was one of those freakonomic things where you you t- you take a look at two data sets that you don't. You wouldn't normally compare, and I feel like um, we're in that kind of situation now. I mean, um, where you have you have this group of people who are, like you said, at the front lines. They're delivering your furniture. They're delivering your food, right? The Uber Eats guy who's taking a risk because he has to, so you don't have to, and and um, the, all the folks that are working at your Ralphs and your Whole Foods and your supermarkets and your pharmacies and and that whole kind of line of last defense of normalcy. Because like you, I remember uh, before, before uh, it was in the, just that like two, three-day period when California went on lockdown, before there was obvious some high-level discussion about closing the supermarkets earlier and then giving kind of um, letting people in 10 at a time and limiting what they could buy. And I walked into a Trader Joe's and everything was stripped and everyone in there was taking it on the chin pretty well. There was a sense of levity, like, oh, my God, where every really people are stockpiling the mochi. Right. Right. (laughs) You know, like people were laughing at what. And then, you know, because we're vegans, we were like, oh. Awesome. The vegans are going to survive because no one wants that food, right? So, so we could find all of our vegan crap that we like. But, but, um, but it. But at the same time, you could palpably feel that um, everyone was on the razor's edge. Like all it would take is for Trader Joe's to shutter, and everyone would go from levity to terror. Yeah, and and. Um, and just watching people in those first days, I watched this dude in front of us and he had three shopping carts full of canned goods. And of course, everyone was looking at him like, and I thought, you know, I try to be generous and think, ah, oh, you know, who knows? I don't know this guy's story. Maybe, maybe he runs a school or an orphanage or whatever. But just that sense of like, people were hunkering down and there was no sense of the, of the commons, right? No sense of like, well, if I'm packing every canned good into four carts for my family of four, I guess everyone else can just you know fuck off and fend for themselves. That whole doggy dog um, level of if we if we didn't have people stocking the shelves and restocking dairy and putting out the fresh leeks and and avocados, uh, people would 
lose their shit. I yeah. think. I know. I completely agree with you. I think if if those systems break down, we are kind of doomed. I mean, yeah, we're also in a giant city. I don't know if if you know. Obviously, anybody living on a farm is probably right. can just ride this out. But yeah, there was it was scary to go into a grocery store and go like half the stuff I wanted that's always here, that's never not been here, is right. not here. Um, yeah. It was a weird, really weird feeling. Um, like Brandy, at one point we, we didn't have eggs for a while, which like, listen, let me cry, cry me a river. I didn't have <laughs> eggs. I don't even really eat many eggs, to be honest with you. Uh, but they started selling like there was the accessibility to eggs in half dozen cartons and we're a household of six people. So Brandy took three cartons and when she got to the, to the teller, he kind of gave her a hard time. Like that's one, you're allowed to buy one of those. And she was like, well, there's four of us here at the store right now. Can we each buy one? And he was like one per household. Meanwhile, you know, I eat a f- couple pounds of lean meat every day and and like I I've never I've n- nobody's ever batted an eye when I go to Whole Foods and buy 10 pounds of chicken breast. I'm not hoarding chicken breast. That's like 3 days worth of food. Totally. Um but yeah, it is it is so bizarre and that was kind of my darkest thought was like if the truck drivers get scared and don't go to the farms and the people at the grocery stores get scared and don't open the grocery stores, what happens? Then it's really chaos. Then it is. I mean, that's uh, some friends of mine were like, oh, all these people who are buying guns. And I said, well, yeah, I I hear you. But the only thing between us and should I wish I bought a gun is a supermarket. Right. (laughs) Because once the food's gone in an urban center, then it's zombie apocalypse. And it's like, what do we do? And how do I feed my family? And all that kind of um, natural and artificial sort of uh, beast that's providing for the family, you know, that kind of hyper machismo um, sets in and both, and there would be reason for it, right? Like um, where you, where are you going to get food? And, And when you're in a big family like yours or mine, and you've got a lot of people living in one house, it is, it's interesting to see how fast it goes. Oh yeah. Like I, yeah. Right. Like it, just like you're saying it sitting there thinking, wow, do we really eat that many avocados? Do we really, uh, do we really go through that much food? So maybe that's yet another, if not silver lining, another thing to think about is it's made us really aware of our, what we consume and how much we consume of it. And I hope that that's a lesson that we walk away from and it doesn't just become something that we go, oh, now we don't have to think about it. <laughs> Me too. I mean, dude, I got to be honest with you. I am still holding out hope that shit goes as back to normal as it possibly can. And like, I continue to exercise. I continue to stay on my diet. But then there's the the, the dark, the dark angel sitting on the other shoulder going, you know, it's only going to be McDonald's in a couple months. That's literally, that's going to be nationalized. That That's going to be the only thing everybody can eat. Just start now. Oh Prepare God. yourself now. Prepare yourself for the Big Mac. Yeah. yeah. 
The Big Mac apocalypse. The Big Mac apocalypse. <laughs> I don't really think that's going to happen, but that's where I go in my darkest moments of like half the population's going to die and the other half is only going to have McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> that is a video game level nightmare. Yeah. That's that is that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I um yeah. Or I'll, or I'll be hunting deer in Griffith Park, you know, <laughs> trying to go like, I need something lean, lean protein, you know. And, and then and the other half of me is going like, what am I wasting all my time lifting weights for? I just need cardio. Everybody just needs cardio at this point because we're going to have to run for our lives. Our lives, right? Yeah. Exactly. No, I hear you. I, 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 yeah, no, I absolutely hear you. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll be, yeah. yeah. Part of me, I, I, I'm never the optimist. So part of me wants to think, well, you know, the, the problem with zombie apocalypse movies, of course, is that it, 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 it's only dramatic as long as people act uh, like they're in a state of nature, like it's a dog-eat-dog world. But when you look at, at, at actual catastrophes, like you look at Katrina and you have a couple days of mass looting and insanity, but then you have this, this total turnaround where the whole community comes together and and there's this high level of she saw this at 9-11 right new yorkers became nice for the first time in 100 years right <laughs> and like recognized they had neighbors that had lives and and um so i i kind of feel like that that's also what people do but then you know food man and 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 i the thing that makes me feel like the big mac apocalypse um how could we portmanteau that big macopolis anyway big that, that, yeah something big there's gonna be a good one in there that's, yeah, big mac again <laughs> exactly you can sell that to mcdonald's yeah um they'll make it into a game the, the the only thing that really does make me fear that is um you know like most of us we can put up with a lot as individuals, but it's when um, it's when the people you love, you, you can be really violent for them, right? Like that's not a difficult animal to access. You just have to imagine someone coming at a loved one and you go into that hyper. I think most people do, right? They're like, um, you know, would you ever kill anyone? No, I couldn't kill anyone. How about if they were attacking your children? They're dead. You know, like it's right. Just, no problem. That, no problem. Right. Like it's not even a moral. Um, and so I, I that's that's really the only thing I would I would fear if something goes on long and you start seeing um, really the necessities and and here a necessity is not toilet paper. But um, but yeah, when you start seeing the essentials kind of dry up and there's no access to them. Um, yeah. That would be that would be bad, but I, it doesn't look like we're headed there. No, I hope not. I do have a hard time sometimes wrapping my head around mortgage and rent, and I go like, "Look, I think right. the only way this works, the most rational way, is across the board. Everybody goes, everybody's taking a hit for this month, right? But the problem is once you get to the mortgage holders, I think some huge percentage of the mortgage holders have force majeure uh, clauses that say it doesn't matter yeah. what happens. You either pay us or we own the property. And exactly. so that 
you get to the top and the top, the very top is not going to take a hit. The very top is either going to get paid or wind up owning everything. Um, and, and that's where I kind of go like, okay, it's great that nobody can get evicted this month, but at what, when do they get a free, a bonus month to earn all the money that they're going to owe down the line for this month? I just can't wrap my head around it. And I don't know that just uh, excessively printing money is a solution. I don't know who that helps necessarily. So I, I get a little spun out about how we move forward, how we become, how we go back to some sense of normalcy. But I do have a lot of hope in people that, that they, that we as a society will figure out a way to get through this. Yeah. I, you know, um, what's interesting having, having, um, an English subject here with us is he's obviously worried about his money, but he's here in the States and I got to say, what what they're doing, what France is doing, what Denmark's doing, makes so much sense to me. And they're doing their, uh, I think in England, it's a 500 billion pound bailout, which is certainly comparable to what we're doing here in the United States in terms of scale, or when you adjust for scale. But what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we're going to freeze the economy. We're going to take a look at your your the last three years of your taxes. We're going to average them out, and then we're going to give you 80% of your income. And you'll be able to pay your mortgage. You'll be able to buy your essentials. Because you're safely at home, we're going to assume that the 20% you spend on soccer games and going to the mall are not there. And we're all going to sit tight until this thing's over, and then we're going to start the thing back up. And that seems, I'm no economist, but that seems so sensible to me. Rather than we're going to send everyone, whether they're needed or not, um, you know, because we'll qualify for a a payment from the government, but I'm getting my paycheck. Like, because I'm a a teacher, we're still teaching distance learning and we're still getting a paycheck. So I frankly don't need the 1200 bucks they're going to send me, but they're going to send it out sort of indiscriminately. People are going to lose their jobs, unemployment claims, then they're going to have to try to get their jobs back. It just seems like a a janky way to do it when you're already obviously prepared to spend two, three trillion dollars. Like just the size of that bailout is is difficult to wrap your head around. Yeah. And then the the weird small business loans that the Fed is making accessible that they may say we never want back or they may be able to call them in at any point. Like what happens when the Fed suddenly owns a bunch of shit? Exactly. Exactly. I, I don't know how that works. I don't either. And I and that makes me highly. It just makes me suspicious because, it, it, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, or if you're even in the aisle, right? If you're floating above it, um, you know, simple economics is the people making the choices or making choices that, even if they don't enhance their wealth, they protect it. Because you'd be a fool uh, or Mother Teresa not to do that. And so, um, you know, in the same way that we as families may not want to take from someone else, but we're jolly well going to make sure that our family has something. It just doesn't seem to me the way that this whole stimulus plan was structured, that there isn't that there isn't some uh, some pork for somebody in there that just as you're suggesting at the end of this, we're going to find out, oh, 
Okay, so now that the, the now that the sirens have stopped wailing and everyone's back to work, I've got a I've got a check. You know, it's sort of like the way the healthcare system works. Like, no, no, don't worry, we're going to heal you, and then you're going to worry about the the and that actually, frankly, I was using that as an analogy, but it's it's a real example. What about all these people in states like Texas or Louisiana where you got 20% uninsured and you're hearing a lot about from the federal government about oh no. COVID's not going to cost anything. We got these agreements from health insurance companies. Well, yeah, but what if you're not a SICA member? What if you're just a, a dude who's a day laborer or you're and you or your wife or your husband, you get sick? I mean, well, who's going to pay those bills? Are you going to just be able to write them off? And I think that's a, especially since you're dealing with a lot of, um, a lot of people in the South Right, so the rates are increasing in the South in a way that's concerning, particularly in places like Louisiana. Got a lot of old people and a lot of old people who are getting by without insurance. What what's that going to look like for them? So, I mean, it 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 just seems like those those governments that sort of said, you know, let's make this real easy. Let's just give you eighty percent. You keep paying. You keep paying for Netflix. You keep paying your grocery bill, and um, cut out the stuff, to cut out the fat that you can. And then when this all gets back going, it'll be a much easier uh, circuit to break. We don't have to. We don't have to figure out where all the pieces go again. They'll basically remain the same, and then just we'll ramp it back up. That may be a, an oversimplification, but. Um, I don't know what this is going to look like. And then if we've got to do it all over again in the fall, which we may very well have to, it will be interesting to see what chickens come home to roost. Yeah. I mean, listen, if this is something that becomes really regular, then our entire operating system has to change. You know what I mean? We can't, it can't be like a month to month system if we're going to take multiple months off every year to, to hide from... Uh, some virus. It just, that's right. not workable long-term. So I hope somebody's thinking about that. I'm certainly not fucking smart enough to come up with the solution to that. I, I just don't lo- love the way we're doing it now. No, well, I actually think you are smart enough to come up with the solution. Just luckily we haven't tasked you with that yet. Thank God. But, I'm, <laughs> but um, yeah, don't, don't, don't underplay your, your brights when it comes to this. You ask a lot. Well, as, you ask a lot of questions that that don't get asked more more broadly until much later, like the ones you're asking now. I mean, it's funny to me that you've you've been asking these questions for weeks, and I'm seeing the answers that you came up with in the New England Journal of Medicine yesterday. So, well, thank know. God. I just I, I'm so glad we I'm so glad we finally talked about it because. I really was kind of going around in circles going, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. And like, look, it doesn't really matter if it makes sense to me. At the end of the day, I am going to stay in my house. I am going to, you know, wash my hands more and not touch my face, encourage my children to do that, not let them see their friends, keep them on quote unquote house arrest, as they say. Like I'm doing all that. I just would like to know I would just like to be presented with it in a way that I go, okay, that makes sense versus 
Millions of people are going to die. You know, like we hear this from the news. Uh, We're going to go to war with Iran. We're going to go to war with North Korea. We're going to do this. It's all bad. It's all bad. It's all bad. And at the end of the day, I go, I'm not listening to you anymore. Exactly. It's it's the boy who cried wolf, right? I mean, at what point do you say, okay, so wait a minute. So last time we went under house arrest and I lost a bunch of money and almost lost my house. Nobody in my family got sick and nobody I knew died except, you know, a friend of a friend. So yeah, whatever with that, unless you're going to enforce it, I'm not going to do it. And I think that's the risk that that you rightly um, you rightly underline with this kind of, um, I think it's really important to determine whether what's happening is an overreaction. And if and if they come back, they being the, the, the powers that be, if they come back and say, listen, we learned a lot. We don't have to get as crazy. We, we do have to do a kind of safer at home, but we have to do it in this way. I think they'll get a lot of response. But I'm concerned that if, just as you point out, if this happens over and over, people are going to go, well, they're either going to give in to a kind of fatalism and say, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it, or they're going to, it's going to become very dark and there's going to be even more suspicion than there already is about um, about the ones calling the shots. Like, they're, well, you know, last time they did this, I really got screwed economically and it made my life miserable, but I didn't get this virus. So whatever, unless they, unless they're going to, pick people off from the rooftops if we leave our house. I'm going to just continue business as usual. And I, I think that's important. I yeah. think especially if it's... Yeah. yeah, if at the end of the day, if we come through this and the the numbers that they've been saying that they continue to say, you know, they continue... Like, I, I, I'm glad you read this thing that says California looks like it's going to be okay because Garcetti two days ago was saying we're going to have 100,000 deaths in the blink of an eye you know, just a few, two days ago or something like that. So if we come through this and it's not, and, and there, and, and the, and the amount of casualties are so much less than they had been telling us they were going to be, even with stay at home, they're going to have to explain it in such a way because the, the time spent in ICU I under that makes sense. If you have a situation where that that bottlenecks and suddenly the hospitals are turning people away and that's got a domino effect, I get that. That makes sense. Okay, we can't have that happen. Fine. But if if we come through this and there are like a fraction of the deaths that there are typically associated with the flu, I imagine some people are going to be pissed off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you'll and some people will be making a lot of hay of it, you know, uh, for good or ill. There'll there'll be a lot of fingers pointed and a lot of red circles underlining fatality rates and the sort of stuff we saw at the beginning, but maybe with a with um, with a more healthy skepticism than there was before. And I mean, um, because I think the questions you're asking are important because regardless of whether all of this stuff was necessary, you have to have a a modest amount of skepticism at least in order to learn from it. If you just sort of say, great, you know, uh, we made through it um, and everything's fine, um, uh, but we're not going to question any aspect of it. That's bad too, simply because from an educational standpoint, you need to break it down and 
And you want to break it down on on the level on our level on the on an ordinary level. What did this mean for me, and um, what maybe could have been different, and what what at the end of the day do I think we have did we have to learn? Because Garcetti's not getting information that's any more privileged or exclusive than the information you and I can get. I mean, not not within internet. He. Right. So the New York Times is reporting that the president of the United States is getting a lot of his information from a variety of projections and studies uh, like the ones coming out of the University of Washington, which at least um, I don't do epidemiology professionally anymore. But from the data set that I'm looking at, they look they look like a very tight like they've done all their work right. Um, Who knows predicting the future? But they look like they they're really smart people and they've really got it down. Well, if the White House is looking at them and we can look at them, then it's an incumbent upon us as citizens to ask those kinds of questions and to be part of that discussion and yeah. not just go, oh, yeah. I, yeah, again, I'm not uh, I'm just not a guy who tends to believe something because somebody said it. I want to understand why it's that way if that makes sense. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here going like, this is not true. We shouldn't be doing this, anything like that. I just wanted to understand it. And for the first time in our conversation, I did, I felt like, okay, it's not, we're not just being had these numbers. Here's why they add up to that. It's and and I mean, Duncan, thank you because I was, I was pretty freaked out for a while. Like what the hell is going on? I was no, thank you. I was I was excited. Like I said, it's a dopamine rush when you when you study epidemiology. <laughs> you, like it's not the sort of things you can just whip out at a cocktail party and you know, like be the cool dude. Like people just uh uh-huh. Average length of stay, huh? I mean, it, so it was really exciting just to be able to talk to someone about it. Yeah. Well, listen. Hopefully. We do get back to a sense of normal. You're not teaching school from Zoom. At some point, <laughs> you get to actually have contact with your kids again, because I know that's very important. It and is. we should do the episode that I'd always planned on doing, which was about nutrition in schools. I would love to do that. Would love to do that. Awesome. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you very much, Ethan. I can't wait to see you in the flesh. Yeah, you too. See you soon. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to American Glutton. We've received a lot of questions at AmericanGlutton.net, and we're going to do our best to get through all of them. Jack wants to talk about intermittent fasting. Okay. Is your daily consumption of calories kept in a certain number of hours, like intermittent fasting? If you have had an experience with that, how many hours would you give yourself to consume those calories? which leaves how many hours do you fast? I ask this because you've said you do 30-minute fasting cardio in the morning. Yes. I don't always do 30-minute fasting cardio. I do not do intermittent fasting. I eat throughout the day. I do fasted cardio because, I mean, kind of because the floor that I sleep on is in between the floor of my house that the kitchen is on and that the cardio area is in. And so I wake up and go, I'm not going to go upstairs 
to make myself breakfast, then down two flights of stairs to do cardio, then back three flights of stairs. Like that to me just seems like a lot of stairs, which I don't need to do because I'm lazy. So I go from my bedroom downstairs into the basement, do my cardio, and then go up and eat. And then I rationalize it by saying, yeah, fasted cardio means I'm like doing something more than probably than I'm doing, right? But uh, that's the real, real truth behind why I hit cardio first thing in the morning. It's just closer to my bedroom than food. I don't do intermittent fasting because I want to retain as much muscle as possible. So I want to dose my muscles with protein throughout the day. I was to squeeze all of my protein into a tiny little window. My liver would convert the majority of it to to glucose. It wouldn't affect my muscles in the same way that dosing it throughout the day does. So I don't do that. I also don't do intermittent fasting because I'm not ever going to be in such an extreme caloric deficit probably ever again that I'm going to be like starving throughout the day. And so, you know, I'm not really hungry right now. I'm not, if I miss a meal, I'm hungry. But if I eat, if I, if I, if I eat the way I'm, I've planned out a week of eating, if, if it, if it all goes to plan, I don't get hungry. So the idea of like needing to have some big meal that I can that I wouldn't have now and the way I would do that is I would squash three or four of my little meals together and make it one big meal. I don't know if that's as effective for the body. I, I have no idea. I do believe that the principle of losing weight while intermittent fasting is just that you're squashing all your calories into a small window and therefore eating less than you would if you were eating throughout the day. And you kind of do away with snacking too. And so, you know, but I don't, I, all my food is planned out by me and I know exactly what I'm going to eat. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.